My name is Bill, and I'm a sinner saved by grace. Thank you, worship team. Thank you, Stephanie, for being up here. Um, the first time I saw Stephanie do a worship song was back in 2004. I don't know how old she was, but she's older now. It was at a, it was at a work camp in Merrill, Wisconsin. And Stephanie's going, oh my, I can't believe you can. But it was a blessing then, and it's a blessing now to see her up here. And I see her up here praising God and, and growing in the Lord. And just think of how many, how many prayers brought her there, mom and dad. How many prayers brought her there? Church, thank you, God. And we need to be praying. We need to be praying um, for each other and for our children because um, it's important. I'm going to read John 13, 31 through 38, and then pray. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now, this is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also, be glorif- will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, there I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. And if you have love for one another, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me, but you will follow afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until he, you have denied me three times. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you are a great God, a loving God. And you sent your son to die for me, to die for us. And I thank you, Lord. And Lord, your love is steadfast. Your love is steadfast no matter what I do, no matter what we do, Heavenly Father. And Lord, forgive me for, in my tiredness and frustration, for not running to you first, Heavenly Father. And forgive us, Lord, because, Lord, you, you fill our hearts. And you are the only thing that can completely fill our hearts. And I just thank you for that. Lord, Lord I, I give thanks for Pastor Duncan and his hard work here and his love for you and the word and for others, Lord, and, and his wife, Michelle, Lord. I, I thank you for North Shore Church, Lord. I thank you for the workers and the ministries, Lord, for, for the workers, Heavenly Father. And, Lord, I, I, I thank you for... Um, the caregivers right now in nursery and in Roots, Heavenly Father, it's, it's hard. It's hard to love on kids and, and be consistent. It's hard to, to, to do the work sometimes, Lord, but you are glorified through it, and I thank you for that. And Lord, I, I pray for continued protection for North Shore Church, Lord. I, I pray that we would be a church that would, as individuals as a church, that we would know how much you love us, Lord, because that changes everything, and that we would love you and love others well. May you be glorified. Lord, our time now, may um, the Holy Spirit be here. May we, we hear what needs to be heard. May our hearts be open. The eyes of our hearts, Heavenly Father, may they be open. And just be with Pastor, Lord, during this time. And may you be glorified. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you, Bill. 
Well, we continue to look through the Upper Room Discourse. It's in John's Gospel, chapters 13 through 17. We've just started chapter 13. Jesus has washed the disciples' feet. He's identified Jesus, Judas, I should say, as his betrayer, and he's permitted him to do his satanic betrayal. Clearly, when Judas leaves, that triggers something in Jesus, because John tells us in verse 31, as Bill read, when he, Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. This is really the introduction to the Upper Room Discourse. The rest of it has been preliminary. This is where the teaching starts. And the reason he teaches it this way is very intentional and very important. The way that he introduces the Upper Room Discourse is important because Jesus is looking ahead to the crucifixion. And as he's looking ahead to the crucifixion, he says, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God, God the Father, is glorified in him. And then he says that God will glorify the Son in himself, which means now, with the cross clearly in view, both the Father and the Son will glorify each other and are glorified in each other. Those are some of the most instructive words in the entire teaching because what Jesus is doing is he's helping us to see this is the lens through which I am looking at the events of this passion. This is my perspective on the passion. Now this will happen. And what does he say? Now I'm going to be glorified. Now the Father is going to be glorified. We know this is so important to him because he's repeating what he's already said in chapter 12, in verse 27. Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. So Jesus is troubled here, very troubled deeply troubled by the looming prospect of the the horrors of the cross, spiritual and physical, but he admits it's inescapable, and he admits that this, at the very heart of his purpose is his desire that the Father would glorify his name, and the Father assures Jesus that he will glorify his name through what is going to happen on the cross. So in two consecutive chapters, chapter 12 and chapter 13, John ties the cross to the glory of God. So that repetition tells us something, doesn't it? Because the cross is the most important event in human history, and it's one of the main reasons that God became a man, that means it's important for us to spend some time thinking about Jesus' main motivation. If it's that important, we need to be thinking about what Jesus says here as This is what's on my mind. This is what's driving me. This is what's going to be running through my mind as I go through my passion. God's glory, my glory. That's what he's saying. So we're going to take a look just at these two verses today, 31 and 32 in chapter 13. The question that's going to direct us is one that's pretty intuitive, and that is why. Why is Jesus, as he's looking out across the events of his appending passion, why, with all of the whore included in that, why would Jesus be talking about his and the Father's glory? That's an incredibly important question. This tells us so much about the heart of God. 
and at the heart of the crucifixion. I mean, you might expect, if Jesus is anticipating his cross, for him to say something like, now is the Son of Man to be scourged and mocked and crucified by the hand of sinners. He's already said something like that. Okay? Or, now the great trial for which I have come into this world will be fulfilled. Again, not new. Or, now my humiliation begins. In other words, focusing on what's actually going to happen to him. The events which are going to be pretty outstanding and pretty painful for him. Those would have been accurate and similar to what he said before. But here he goes in a completely different direction and he frames the events of his passion with God's glory. Now we know he's talking about the glory of the cross because in verse 31 he says God will glorify him at once. So imminent, okay? This isn't some future glory, some future ethereal glory. Uh, It's very soon. It's within hours. Later, Jesus says to Peter, where I am going, you cannot follow me now. And Peter asked, why can I not follow you now? So clearly this is the cross. Again, why would Jesus talk about the imminent and terrifying events of his passion in terms of glory? I mean, from a human perspective, what could possibly be glorious about being beaten into a bloody mass and stuck to a wooden cross among criminals, which is what's going to happen to him. Well, before we can appreciate Jesus' concern for his glory, we need to understand just a little bit more, very basic understanding of what is the glory of God as he's talking about it here. If we don't understand with some precision what this is, we're not going to understand his priority on this, which clearly this is a priority. A theological statement about the glory of God, which we'll explain later on, would say something like this. All the attributes of God are summarized in Scripture's reference to the glory of God. The majesty, splendor, beauty, and brilliance of God who dwells in unapproachable light are expressed in this indefinable term. Now that's a lot of theological language. A couple of points there. God's glory is so glorious it cannot be defined. It is expressed. It's seen. It's manifested in divine attributes. Things like His holiness, His justice, his mercy, etc. So there's this panoply of attributes, these many faceted facets of a diamond that all in some way express his glory. And as we see in a moment, the reason the cross is central to the glory of God is because it's in the cross of Christ all the glorious attributes of God are brought together and put on display. That's why glory and the cross are are married inextricably. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky proclaims His handiwork. What he's saying is the creation announces or the creation reflects some of God's attributes. It glorifies Him in that sense. Tim Keller reflects on that verse that I just read. And he says, The Grand Canyon shows the glory of God, but it's like the moon. It's a reflection of of the glory of God. But when you go to the cross, he says, you're looking at God's glory in the full sun blaze of itself. The cross doesn't just reflect God's glory like the the, the moon reflects the glory of the sun. The cross emblazons the glory of God. It's in the cross of Christ where God's glory-laden attributes are revealed most powerfully and most completely. The cross is the most concentrated expression of God's glory possible that we could know of. 
That means that the most vivid experience of God's glory in this life, in the life of an average believer, that can be received by spending serious time meditating, thinking long and hard on the cross. The glory of God is not just some ephemeral topic out there that we can kind of think about in vague terms. No, it's concrete. It's the cross. You want to get to the glory of God? You want to go to the innermost depths, the nuclear core of the glory of God? Think about the cross. We've seen before that the teaching of Scripture reveals that all of human history builds up to this one climactic unveiling of God's glory at Calvary. Every other precious revelation of God's glory, for instance, His glory on the radiant face of Moses, His glory high and lifted up in the heavenly throne in Isaiah chapter 6, the glory of Jesus in His transfiguration, if you were to put all of that glory together, a tiny spark, in comparison to the ultimate glory of God revealed at Calvary. In each of those earlier revelations, you see one or perhaps a few aspects of God's glory, His majesty, His resplendence, His radiance. But on the cross, you get as close to a complete picture of God's glory as has ever been, and as far as we know, ever will be. To see why Jesus connects His crucifixion to His glory more closely, we want to look at four of the many ways in which God's glory is ablaze in the cross of Christ. Four ways in which the glory of God is ablaze in the cross of Christ. First, God's glory is seen on the cross in His perfect justice. God's glory is seen in His perfect justice on the cross. Justice is one of God's attributes, isn't it? God is the judge of the universe. His justice is perfect. The scriptures say that many, many times. And a big part of God being just is his absolutely unfailing punishment of the wicked. Okay? You would not ever accuse a judge of being just if he let the guilty go unpunished. God never lets the guilty go unpunished. Proverbs 11.21 says, Be assured an evil person will not go unpunished. Exodus 34.7 says that God will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Numbers 14.18 says the Lord will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. The prophet Nahum 1.3 says the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. You get the feeling? This is repeated over and over and over in the Old Testament, which means it's extremely important for us to know about the character of God. There is no way in the universe that God as judge will ever let any guilty offender off without being fully and completely punished for his sin. To not punish the guilty as they deserve is as foreign to God as lying or coveting would be. His perfectly just nature demands that he punish the guilty to the full extent of his holy law and his omnipotent power assures us that no one will ever be able to escape that punishment. So here we are, cosmic rebels, living in a world of people that are in rebellion against God. Nothing we can offer God for our pardon could ever satisfy His justice because we're totally depraved, we're totally defiled by our sin. Our guilty fingerprints would leave a terrible stain on anything that we would try to offer Him. God is glorified at the cross because at the cross, God through Christ shows us His perfect justice as He mercilessly judges all the sin of His people. Romans 3.25 helps us get a handle on that. 
It may appear to be a little bit complex, but we'll break it down. Paul is speaking of Jesus, and he says, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's break that down just a little bit. Paul is, what he's doing here is he's revealing that none of God's people who died before Jesus, before he came to earth, none of those people had received the punishment that their sins deserved. Okay? That left God potentially open to the charge of being unjust, of being inconsistent with his character that by no means clears the guilty. So Paul is saying that to address that potential misunderstanding about God, God put Jesus forward as a propitiation. That's a big word, very important word. That is the perfect sacrificial lamb to receive the wrath of all sin of his Old Testament people. That's propitiation, to bear wrath, okay? Jesus bore the wrath of all of those sins that had been committed before he came so as to erase any doubt about the fact that he punishes sin and is therefore perfectly just. He received the full measure of God's wrath their sins deserve. Because he is just, God's anger, his righteous anger against sin, must be fully and completely satisfied. And Paul is saying it was. Okay? In Romans 3, after the cross, God could no longer be accused of being less than perfectly just. Instead of punishing the people themselves, however, he put forward his own sinless son as a substitute in their place. Jesus became the target of God's anger as he hung on the cross and became a wrath-bearing sacrifice. This God-glorifying justice meted out to Jesus was not only for those who lived before Christ, of course, but also for those on this side of the cross, obviously. All of those who would believe. If you've placed your trust in Christ as God's perfect sacrificial lamb, then all the wrath, the divine rage God justly had toward your sins has already been spent. What a great truth that is. God's anger for our sins was spent completely 2,000 years ago. All the anger God has for my past, present, and future sins has already been poured out on Jesus. Somebody has already been punished for my sin. If you're in Christ, your sin can never bring God's wrath upon you. Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. God is no longer opposed to us who believe because in the glorious justice of the cross, the righteous anger that we deserved was instead fully absorbed by Jesus as his Father crushed him for our sin. That's the justice the glory of God and the justice of the cross. A second way the glory of God uniquely radiates from the cross is because in the cross we see the glory of God's love. The glory of God's love. Romans 5, 6 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In the cross, 
God proves that his love for us who believe in him is utterly unique and utterly unquestionable. If we're following Christ and we question God's love for us, as we said before, we need to more deeply believe the gospel because it's on the cross that the invincible evidence of his love for believers is on display. When a believer doubts God's love, a genuine believer doubts God's love for him, he's impugning Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. It's as if he's saying to God, sacrificing your innocent son, crushing him on the cross for my sin, it wasn't enough for me to be convinced of your love for me. You need to do something more to assure me. The reason the cross is the pinnacle, the, the apex, the ultimate expression of the glory of God's love is because it is impossible for him to ever do anything more loving than sacrificing his perfect, eternal, sinless son for the sake of fallen, blasphemous rebels who are at war with him. He can't do any more than that. John, the apostle of love, when he defines love, my ears perk up, and he defines love by citing one particular element of Christ's work on the cross. Listen to this. In 1 John 4.10, he says, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. There's that word again, isn't it? Okay. Now, John could have spoken of God's love in terms of his atoning love. It would have been fine. He could have defined God's love in terms of his saving love or some other general reference to the cross. He doesn't do that. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John says the ultimate expression of God's love is his propitiating love. That is, that on our behalf, he surrendered his son to to the most potent and terrifying force in the universe, his own holy wrath. John the Apostle of love says that is God's ultimate expression of love. This glory of God radiating love is the Christ-crushing, divine anger-satisfying, propitiating love of Christ. Two more expressions of God's glory seen in the cross are given in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We've looked at his love, we've looked at his, wit, we've looked at his propitiation, we've looked at his, his justice. Now in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, here's two more. Paul in verse 23 says, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So the two other expressions of God's glory, Christ's glory on the cross are the power of God and the wisdom of God. Let's look first at the glory of God's wisdom. The glory of God's wisdom on the cross. Paul says, the world sees no wisdom in the cross, but only foolishness. In 1 Corinthians 2.6, he says, yet among the mature, he's talking about those who are believers, those who love God. Among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for his glory, for our glory. Paul, talking about the wisdom of God, seen in his glorious plan of redemption that would culminate in the divine Son dying at the hand of sinners. God's glorious wisdom is seen in several ways at the cross. We have time to look at two this morning. First, God's wisdom is seen in the cross because it ensures that God alone will get the glory for his saving work of Christ. God's wisdom in the cross is seen in that it ensures that God alone will get the glory for his saving work in Christ. As we've seen many times, God's highest priority is his 
glory. He wouldn't be God if it wasn't. If there was a way for a sinner to be saved by something that he or she could figure out or achieve, perhaps by the very wise, then they would get the glory, wouldn't they? Not God. You just need to be wise enough to figure out God's plan of salvation. Find that key and put it in the lock. and It'll be yours. 1 Corinthians 1.31 says the reason why God revealed His plan of salvation in the way that He did with His wisdom is because no one could have anticipated this. And therefore, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Eons ago, in eternity past, God predetermined that no one could be saved from their sin because of anything in them. Their position, their wealth, their wisdom, their cleverness, their stature, their intelligence, their beauty, anything in them. Everyone would need to be totally and completely dependent upon His saving work done in His Son. To that end, God devises a plan to forgive sinners that would not only be dependent upon Him, more than that, His plan would appear to be so outlandish to the wise of this world, the elites of this world, that they would never be able to figure it out and they would never believe it, apart from His grace. His plan of salvation would be so far removed from anything they could ever conceive, they would dismiss it as ridiculous, which they do. The wise or the elite of this world consider it patently foolish to believe that an all-powerful, all-knowing God would save condemned sinners from His eternal wrath by sending His sinless, all-powerful, all-knowing, divine Son as their substitute to die a torturous, humiliating death executed among criminals. The wisdom of this world, as seen through liberal theologians, calls that divine child abuse. That's what they call the cross, divine child abuse. No one in a million years could ever intuit that plan or in any way figure that out because the fallen, upside-down wisdom of this world, to that wisdom, it's foolish. It's foolhardy. God's wisdom in this plan of redemption takes what this world prizes, wealth and power and position and education and status, and it renders them utterly irrelevant to salvation. Instead, in God's plan, he takes what the wisdom of this world despises, humiliation, vulnerability, weakness, and death, and he uses those hated things to save sinful people. In this way, God alone gets the glory from the cross. A second way God's glory is seen in the wisdom of the cross is in 1 Corinthians 1.22. Paul says, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. A second way God's glorious wisdom is seen in the cross of Christ is the only ones who will believe in Christ crucified for their salvation are those to whom God calls by revealing to them His wisdom in the cross. The only ones who will believe in Christ crucified for their salvation are those whom God calls. Let's unpack that just a little bit. Paul cites the blindness of most of the Jews and most of the Greeks, most of the Gentiles, and their inability to see the wisdom of the cross. Okay? Then in verse 24 he says, but 
to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. He's saying that what enables a person to see the cross as anything other than a scandalous stumbling block, anything other than foolishness, it doesn't have anything to do with you're a Jew or a Gentile, it has to do with whether you're among those who are called. God is the active agent in salvation. He uses this gospel message that sounds so foolish to the world to call those he chooses to himself. The implication is that no one, through their own fallen reason, would see that the way to be saved from your sin is to look in faith to a humiliated, crucified Jewish rabbi. Only those God supernaturally calls to himself can genuinely, savingly believe this. That's what he's saying. The gospel message of the cross is not appealing to people because of anything in them, any wisdom in their part. The gospel message is appealing and gloriously compelling to people to see that their biggest problem is solved, their sin problem, only to those whom God himself has called to be saved. A person can be saved from his or her sin only when God, by his grace, for his glory, gives a person a new heart that can supernaturally see the wonder of God's wisdom revealed in the cross of Christ. And Paul says the reason God does it this way is so he gets all the glory. It's possible to call yourself a Christian and to believe the gospel, but not see the wonder and the glory and the beauty of the cross, not to be dazzled by it. For those who are believers, it's beautiful, it's glorious, Bedazzling. Final way the cross glorifies the Father and the Son is seen in the glory of God's power. The glory of God's power in the cross. The most impressive display of raw spiritual power in world history is at Calvary. 2,000 years earlier in the Garden of Eden, God's representative on earth, Adam, through his disobedience, forfeited his authority to rule over this world. As a result, Satan was granted temporary authority over this world. This is what Luke records in his account of the temptation of Jesus by Satan. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment in time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Immediately after Adam's fall, God announced his future predetermined plan to Satan that one day another son of Adam, a second Adam, would come and crush your head and you will strike his heel. Later when God announced that his future champion was coming through Abraham and the Jews, Satan relentlessly sought to destroy the Jews by seducing them into demonic idolatry by their Canaanite neighbors. God, however, was faithful to preserve a bloodline from Abraham to a king named David to a virgin named Mary. As Jesus ministered, the Gospels tell us that he was constantly assailing the kingdom of darkness as he worked to return God's reign to this earth. And as we said last week, at some point in time it became clear to Satan that he couldn't defeat Jesus through the temptation for him to refuse to go to the cross. So in a last-ditch effort, Satan reverses his strategy, trying to cause Jesus to disobey God in the midst of the torture and humiliation of the cross. He tempted God's suffering servant, Jesus, to curse God and malign his 
father. That became his final last-ditch strategy. And we see that strategy implicitly in Isaiah 53, 7. It speaks of Jesus during his passion, and it says, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to slaughter. There was no rebellion. There was no complaining. There was no maligning the Father. Just quiet, silent trust in his Father. When Jesus was on the cross with all the forces of darkness arrayed against him in desperate efforts in their last chance to bring him down in disobedience and maintain Satan's authority over this world, how did Jesus respond as he hung there? And the answer is glorious. Think about the words that Jesus spoke on the cross. Those are not there by accident. They're not recorded by accident. They're there to show us the glory of Christ's overwhelming, overcoming power. For instance, as he was bearing the unimaginable combined burden of the sin of all God's children, he was not overwhelmed by it. In fact, in his most agonizing moment he was not only not overwhelmed by it but rather than scorn his father he prays for the forgiveness of those who nailed him to the cross as he hung on the cross receiving the undiluted wrath of his almighty father rather than curse his father what does he do he instead fulfills his responsibility as the firstborn son to arrange for the care of his mother the point of fact that we're supposed to see is as hard as this was Jesus is doing business on the cross. And so he gives his mother's care to his friend John while he's on the cross, while he's receiving the wrath of God. He's taking care of his domestic affairs. That's the point. He fulfills that responsibility. Finally, when he'd fully and completely paid the penalty for my sin, he willingly surrendered his life at the moment of his own choosing, having finished the work required to destroy the works of the devil, crushing his head while bruising his own heel. Where Adam failed, Christ crucified won a glorious and decisive victory over the evil one. Romans 5.19 says, For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. Colossians chapter 2, Paul writes of this glorious and cosmic victory Christ had over Satan. Verse 13 says, And you, speaking to the believers in Colossae, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Even though Satan is free to still tempt and blind and deceive people, the truth is he was forcefully disarmed by Jesus on the cross. One scholar said it this way, the weapon of soul-destroying sin and guilt is taken out of Satan's hands. He is disarmed of the single weapon that can condemn us, unforgiven sin. That weapon, unforgiven sin, which Satan used to condemn, defeat, and ultimately kill people for eternity. Now, after Calvary, instead, for believers, our unforgiven sin drives us to the cross where we find forgiveness and liberty and eternal life in Jesus. 
This is because on the cross, Jesus violently stripped out of Satan's talons his weapon of the legal guilt of our unforgiven sin. That means that as a result of the cross, Satan is now like a rattlesnake with no poison. He rattles, he strikes, he bears his intimidating fangs, but on Calvary, Christ drew his lethal poison, taking all the torment Satan could hand out on the cross, defeating him, and leaving him without any genuine authority to do any permanent harm to even one of God's children. Do we believe that? And when in our unbelief or ignorance we allow him to defeat us, which we do, God redeems our sin, and he uses our defeat to teach us to be even more potent in Christ than we were before. The cross is the ultimate expression of God's glory. His ultimate power is seen in his triumph over evil. It's on the cross where we see the full-blown glory of God's wisdom, the glory of his unfailing love, and the glory of his holy justice. This is why in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11, Paul calls the message of Christ crucified the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. And this is why Jesus, hours before the torture and humiliation of the crucifixion, can say of it, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If you're sitting here today and you're thinking, this is mildly interesting, I don't see this as anything terribly important for me, I certainly don't have a lot of passion about the glory of God, it's not something that really revs me up a great deal, If that is your response, you have a very, very serious problem spiritually because the reason the Holy Spirit came, he says later in this discourse, was to glorify the Son. The heartbeat of the Holy Spirit is the glory of Jesus Christ. So if the Holy Spirit is within you and living and expressing himself, you're going to say, Amen to the glory of God. That is going to be absolutely something that juices you because that's what the Holy Spirit is juiced by. So if that's not something that gives you goosebumps, that excites you, that impassions you, you have a problem. Either you grieve the Holy Spirit or quench the Holy Spirit to the place where you can't feel his influence any longer, which means you need to repent of your sin, or you don't have the Holy Spirit. Because the glory of God to the child of God indwelt by the Holy Spirit, that should be something that really excites us, makes us see the beauty of Christ. So whatever... Whatever the issue is, if that's describing you today before you leave, repent of your sin, whether that means something you've been doing as a habitual sin to quench the spirit or grieve the spirit and nullify his influence, or whether it's the fact that it's revealing to you, I don't have the Holy Spirit because the primary role of the Holy Spirit, I don't even feel. I don't even sense. That's not exciting to me. That's not impassioning to me. If you're here today as a follower of Christ, The way to see the glory of God is to spend good amounts of time meditating on the glories of Calvary. His justice completely satisfied, his steadfast, sacrificial, totally undeserved love, his great wisdom through his call to you has enabled you to not only understand but to cherish his magnificent wisdom and power that liberated you from the power of Satan and sin and death. Regularly fix your eyes on the glory of the crucified Christ asking God, show me your glory through the cross. May God grant all of us the grace to believe and glory in the cross of Christ. Let's pray.
Father, this is transcendent to speak of your glory. We don't get a whole lot of this. We see through a glass dimly. There are parts of this we're just not going to get this side of heaven. But thank you that you have shown for us in the cross the quintessential expression so that as we, by your grace, as your Spirit illumines our hearts, that as we think on the cross, as we meditate on the cross, we fall more deeply in love with you. We become more impressed with how awesome and how glorious you are. Oh God, I pray that you'd help me. I pray you'd help all those who trust in you to do that. Father, for those who hear about the glory of Christ and they're very lukewarm and they really doesn't do anything for them, Father, help them to see, is that because they don't have the Holy Spirit? Father, convict them. Move. Father, if it's because of things in their life they're allowing or indifference to you that quenches the Spirit, Father, I pray that you'd give them the grace to repent of that. Father, may this discussion of the glory of Christ bring all of us closer to Jesus because of the cross. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.